Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode 72, August Adventures, recorded on September 4th, 2017. My name is Julie Fayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello. It's been a long time since we've done a podcast. I was going to say yes, but it hasn't been a long time since we've seen each other. That's what I thought you were going to say at first, because I literally saw you for dinner like 10 minutes ago. I'm trying to pretend. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm sorry. The first rule of improv is you always say yes. Exactly. Um, actually, by the way, this is actually one of those things that has come over from my theater background into my art background, which is there is this idea when you're teaching people improvisation that um, the only way that that works is if anytime somebody says something, you say yes. And what that means is if somebody says, oh, my God, look at that whale. It's so big. You don't say, I don't see a whale or you know what I mean? Like you go with whatever mm-hmm. it is that they're saying. And the way that I think I've translated some of that over into my art life is actually, I feel like that way with paintings, which is instead of trying to fight what's happening with the painting, it's like I say yes to the painting. What is the painting doing right now that it maybe wasn't doing what I thought it was or I didn't want it to do? I'm going to say yes. And I think like if you think about it that way, the more often you say yes to your work, the better and better it gets because instead of fighting it, you're going with it. You know that somebody gave me child-rearing advice when you were born. That said, say yes to everything your children say, and that's well, why said, I have a pony. Instead of oh, wait, autom- I don't have automatically a pony. saying no to things, think really hard before you say no. Hmm. About, like, why you're saying no and whether it's something that you could say yes to? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have a knee-jerk reaction of even protectiveness. Mm -hmm. which is always to say no. But this person was saying to me, you ought to really think about it before you say no. Well, you know, I was actually going to say that a lot of times I find um, you, what you say to me is you don't either say yes or no. You say, uh, why do you want to do that? Or what, what do you think the point of that will be? Which kind of actually reminds me how like a therapist acts with you because it's your, I find sometimes that you're trying to get me to either, uh, you know, kind of expand on what it is I'm thinking or dial down to what it is is really going on. And it's, it's kind of now become an ingrained thing in me. And I think sometimes, again, not that everything is about art, but everything in my life is about art. Um, to translate that out, it does also become like when I'm looking at a painting, instead of just going, you know, yes or no, I think about, well, why why do I feel like I want to cover up that half of it? Why do I feel like this doesn't work? You know, what is really going on with this thing that I'm thinking? Which I think is another good way of sort of self-critiquing. So, in fact, your whole life with me has been one long therapy session. Yeah, that's exactly, or I need one long therapy session now (laughs) to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) One or the other, I'm not quite sure. Uh, Speaking of people who need therapy... Uh, I have been watching this season of Project Runway with some fascination, and I feel like I haven't really watched a season of Project Runway with this much enthusiasm in a long time. And uh, by the way, in case you don't know what Project Runway is, in case you're, for some reason, you've just come to our planet and you don't know what it is, 
Um, uh, Project Runway is a reality show in which contestants design uh, clothing, and there's usually a challenge around it. And it's um, uh, they go to the brother sewing room, by the way. Uh, but you know, it's always interesting, but this season, the take on it, which is slightly different is that they have given them models of all sizes. So everything from zero through, I think they said there's a size 24 model in it. So it's a real wide range and there's lots of designers there who have never worked with women who aren't, uh, very, very thin. And it's amazing to me how crippling some of them find it. Some people are fine with it, but some of them have a great deal of difficulty with that. And yet they want to be commercial designers. It's virtually impossible to assume that you'll get enough people who are in that size zero to to be able to make it yourself commercially viable unless you become, you know, Oscar de la Renta. I just find it amazing. They're... There are people who just can't do it. Psychologically, they just can't do it. Well, I mean, I think they're, I think for a lot of designers, I mean, what we're used to seeing in fashion shows is the size zero or two women, um, you know, in those clothes. And then they sort of get adapted out of couture into a kind of more ready to wear where somebody works on it to be sort of more flexible for a couple more sizes. But then there's an entirely different set of clothes that sort of like quietly underground get designed for larger women, you know? And I think more and more we're, we're not okay with that anymore, but it's, it is always interesting to see the sort of mental breakdown that happens because, you know, proportions are different and it it isn't a matter just of making things bigger, you know? But what's interesting to me is Project Runway is there really is a craft and a skill uh, and an artistic vision. And I like shows, real, only like reality shows that require some sort of expertise from the people who are in it. I don't like the personal drama. In fact, I know that when you and I watch together, we fast forward through a lot of the personal drama because we're really only interested in the production. Same thing with whether it's the Great British Baking Show or it's So You Think You Can Dance. We're interested in sort of the display of ability and skill. Well, it's not just that. I mean, I think I'm always also interested in the challenge because the first question that I always ask myself, and I think I'm not alone in this as many people do it, which is what would I do with this, right? Mm -hmm. If you're given a bunch of stuff from a recycling plant, like what what would you do to make that into clothing? What kind of stuff would you choose? How would you go after it? And of course, there's a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking because when you're sitting in the comfort of your own house, you know, it's much easier to deal with it than when you're in the moment. And I understand that. But it is still, I find that sort of problem solving to be interesting. And I think part of that is because I think that all art making of any kind, whether you are talking about fashion or dance or baking or anything that's an artistic endeavor, that whether you're under a time pressure or not, it really is about problem solving. I want to, you know, use this fabric, but I only have this much of it. How am I going to solve this problem? I need to, you know, find a way to make this dress different from what 
has been seen before. How am I going to do that? I am, you know, wanting to modernize Elizabethan fashion. How am I going to do that? And so I, I think what these these shows, these game shows or reality shows do is they sort of uh, intensify that experience of problem solving so that you get to watch somebody's brain at work. And I think one of the things that I find the most attractive about a human being is an agile brain. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you how sexy that is. But no, but for really like, you know, people who can think fast and who are very facile and who are very, um, you know, flexible. And uh, that to me is just fascinating to watch and to sort of feed off of. Now I sound like a succubus, but you know what I mean? Do you know that? Remember there was briefly a craft reality show on TV? I do remember that. There was like craft deathmatch or craft. It was something. And it just didn't fly. And I was thinking that one of the reasons it didn't fly was I thought that the projects were un, uninteresting. They were created or the challenges were didn't seem to be created by people who understood the craft industry. Well, I they, think Michaels was in charge of it. But yeah, I mean, that's a whole other separate conversation about whether Michaels understands the craft industry. But anyway. Well, or also was trying to push their own products. I mean, right. Th- what I what I felt when I watched that show, I remember, because you lived in New York at the time, and it was based in New York, and it was mostly crafters from New York, and it just felt like nothing they were making related to anything in my life. Yeah, you know, there was also an, a fine art version of the show. I mean, not the version of the show, but a fine art sort of version of the show where people had, they had art challenges each week, which again was one of those things that people who loved it thought it was really interesting, but it sort of didn't catch on. And it makes me think a little bit about like, if you look at the blog world or Instagram or anything like that, the the posts that get the most interests are the ones that are about fashion, food, you know, makeup, those are the things that the most number of people are interested in. Craft and art stuff is actually very nichey. And I think that, uh, you know, we all have to wear clothes. We all have to eat. You know, those are kind of more universal in some ways. Not everybody is a maker or interested in being a maker. So even if you're not going to sew clothes, you like watching Project Runway because you like to wear clothes. Even if you're not going to bake a trifle, you like to watch people bake a trifle because you want to eat a trifle. Nobody bakes a trifle. Okay. (laughs) Assemble a trifle. Thank you. I would not be on the Great British Baking Show for a number of reasons, but... But anyway, that's only one of them. Um, (laughs) But what I was going to say is, so I think not everybody, you know, feels that way about art or about craft. And so I think there is a disconnect, certainly with people, you know, in that sense, the same way that like I always wondered why. Remember that reality show that was about um, making it on Broadway and they were getting people to be in Greece, you know, they were casting people in Greece, and it just, like, America didn't watch it, whereas I was, like, every single week, I love musical theater, but I'm a total musical theater nerd, whereas, like, American Idol or The Voice or whatever, like, people, it's just more mainstream. I don't know how to put it. Like, art is such a central part of my life that I think, of course, is part of everybody's life, but for a lot of people, it's it's 
they may not be conscious of it. They don't realize that every magazine ad they're looking at, every piece of fabric that they wear, every greeting card they buy, that that is, you know, art or has been made by somebody in some way. So uh, I don't know. I guess I'm just saying I think it's not. I think I think craft and art are just not mainstream in some ways. Okay. You know what? Tell Let's talk because it's something that's happened since you last podcasted about your trip to Europe because you actually for one thing went to the Tate Modern which you had wanted to do for so long for so long I wanted to go to the Tate Modern um and so I was so happy to finally make it there um you know because one of the things of course about museums in other countries is that they're real bucket list places and you may only get one chance to get to some of them so um the Tate Modern is a place I wanted to go for a long time I could have we spent a day there I could have spent much longer there and admittedly I was probably slower through the galleries because I took a bajillion which is a technical number uh of photos which I will be sharing to the blog I just have to edit a bajillion photos and you know resize them for the internet and all that fun stuff they have to do so as soon as I have made my way through those bajillion I will share them. Um, but so let me just talk about the Tate uh, as a building. And let me also say that one of the things uh, that I love about the museum is it's free. It's free, 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 for free. There are certain exhibits that are pay exhibits. Uh, we did not go to any of those. I think if you lived in London or near London and were a, a frequent visitor to the Tate, you might uh, get bored with the... Um, you know, permanent collection and therefore pay to see whatever is new in the visiting exhibition. But we were not local and not bored. Um, the building itself is kind of magnificent. And part of that is that when you go to the very top of the building, um, you've got beautiful views, you know, 360 degree views of the whole of London. So that was wonderful to see. Um, and then, you know, it was interesting to see a different perspective on some American artists. You know, they have actually quite a surprising collection of Rothko's, um, including uh, this entire collection of uh, a set of paintings that I had read about but never seen in person, which are these sort of dark red maroony paintings that were created for a restaurant in New York. Um, and so they were there to like convey a mood and they have them displayed in a kind of dark room on all four walls. So you are kind of surrounded by them, which is kind of was a lovely experience. Um, they also featured a lot of artists who are not artists that the museums I tend to go to feature. So that was great to see that. Um, I got to see, you know, a couple, it's always nice to see like a, a Picasso that you've never seen in real life before and all that kind of good stuff. I did see one piece from the Matisse Cutouts exhibit um, and that was interesting to see it by itself because one of the things about the cutouts that was spectacular is was seeing them all together and in some sort of sequence, seeing them in context, seeing, you know, how... A led to B led to C. Seeing, you know, the small to the large scale, it it somehow was more powerful. Seeing just one by itself, or maybe it was this particular one, I actually felt underwhelmed by it, if I may. I apologize to Matisse for ever calling <laughs> anything of his underwhelming. Um, but so that was interesting to see that painting in a totally different context 
you know, the next time. I suppose it's not a painting, it's a collage. Um, I also went with a very, uh, my boyfriend's not an art person necessarily, not naturally an art person. And I was worried that I was spending too long looking at things. And, you know, sure enough, like he, there are places that he sped ahead, but there are places that I sped ahead. And he really surprised me. He said after our trip that it was uh, maybe his favorite thing that we did in London, or maybe, you know, it was at least in the top three. Um and that was exciting to me because I think that anytime a museum can get somebody who's not a natural art lover to say that was a fun experience and I enjoyed myself and I discovered things, that to me is a good, that's a good museum, you know? It's what, when you're, yeah. What kind of uh, signage did they have? Are they, were they oh, yes. very they... explanatory or historical or chronological? I would say they had not as explanatory as like the Whitney, but more explanatory than MoMA. So, I mean, not to play Goldilocks here, but it was somewhere in the middle. Um, I One of the things I did like is they had this series of rooms that were hung almost floor to ceiling. So the paint and there were sculptures in the middle of them. So instead of seeing sort of everything at eye level, you know, one, two, three, it was just like you walked into these rooms and it was sculpture in the middle, paintings below, above, around, everywhere. And that to me was like a total immersion. And part of what was nice about that is it was in the surrealism section. So it kind of felt like... um for lack of a better term, like being immersed in surrealism, which I think is what surrealism in some ways is about, is that you have an experience that is other. You have an experience that is that is normality turned a little bit. So seeing them displayed like that was kind of an effective moment. Okay. I don't like surrealism, by the way, but I really liked that. Hmm. You know, I say all the time, by the way, that I don't like particular art movements, but then I always have exceptions and reasons. But like, and I, I also wonder why I have to make these declarative statements about what I like and what I don't like. And I think, uh, I don't know, actually. I was going to say that I think the reason that I make these declarative statements of what I like and I don't like is because I'm trying to establish uh, sort of boundaries or like excuses for why I feel certain ways. But I think sometimes, you know, I have like one notion of what surrealism is in my brain. Like, right, I see a dolly dripping clock and I'm like, okay, I get it. Da, 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 doesn't interest me. Right. But on the other hand, I remember seeing a dolly exhibit in which I was blown away by some other work that I had seen less of, you know, that was lesser mm -hmm. known work of his. And so I think sometimes it's, it's uh, exposure. It's like anything. When you say, I don't like this kind of food or I don't like that kind of that, sometimes it's just that you haven't tried enough of it. You've only had like one version of it, right? If you only ever had Taco Bell, then you'd be like, I don't like Mexican food. But then if you went to like a, you know, genuine bona fide Mexican restaurant, you might be like, wow, this stuff is really fresh and delicious and wonderful. So you did make a dive into the British Museum. We did. So as you know, uh, London is not famous for its air conditioning. We were there in an unseasonably warm period and the British Museum was like being in a sauna with all your clothes on and 10,000 of your closest and noisy friends. Sounds wonderful. It was, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I would say it was a brief jaunt through <laughs> it, uh, mainly because I was worried we would uh, die of dehydration at some point in the process. But, uh, you know, it is... It is a mind-blowing museum full of artifacts. Again, I, I took a lot of photos of what we did see, although more briefly because I didn't want to pause and let the sweat <laughs> drip in my eyes. Um, but, you know, there's things like seeing the actual Rosetta Stone. You know, uh, okay. So I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, but like... One of the things that happened when we were in Spain is, you know, they have all these really ancient towns and buildings and stuff. And I I said to Steve as we were standing next to this this building, I said, put your hand on here. And he was like, why? He said, why? Because it's the texture? And I was like, no. I said, this building is from the 16th century. That means it was built in the 1500s. You are touching something that was built. Can you, like, imagine, right, a time like that? And and I think one of the things about seeing, like, the Rosetta Stone in person for me is that it has that same feeling of, like, I've read about this. This is something of legend. I've, you know, I know what a key this is. There's an entire set of, you know, learning tools named after it and like to see the actual item is sort of an exciting moment fraught with um gravity and and also at the british museum i touched the oldest thing i've ever touched which is i really enjoy this they have this guy there who's an expert and he has a bunch of objects and he will talk to you endlessly about any of the objects that you would like which is charming there was also a small amount of some kind of wind near his table so i <laughs> spent a long time there um and he let me hold a hand axe from 300,000 years ago which sounds <laughs> like a really 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 long time ago um and that was exciting too to think that you know here is an object that some pre uh it wasn't a man now i'm gonna forget everything he said about it it was some sort of you know neanderthal-ish type uh pre-human who made this hand axe as a tool and i think i am always interested in that connection through time through history through all those things i mean i think this is why i like to look back to other artists i think that's why in contemporary art things are more interesting if you understand what other movements these people are making statements about with their work i think it's why when you look at anything if you know the history if you're aware of the timeline it just puts things in context in a different way and um I don't know. So that was a really great moment. And then there's just lots of beautiful stuff when you think about the sort of primitive uh, tools that people must have had to make these amazing carvings and to do these just gorgeous, you know, monumental pieces that just leave your jaw hanging. And then, you know, there was a whole ethical side of me that wrestled with some real questions about most of this stuff that's here that's amazing that I'm jaw dropping over is basically based on grave robbery you know, and things that were stolen and taken by fiat by people who had no right to take those things out of those countries, you know, and that's, I mean, that's like an endlessly long other topic about 
you know, mm-hmm. stolen artwork of all kinds. And, you know, grave robbery as okay, not okay. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the answers. I, I, this, I think a person smarter than I needs to navigate those waters. Okay. And I nominate then, you. You're smarter than me. What oh, do you thank think? You. I'll get right on that. <laughs> Sit by the phone till I call you with the answer. I'll wait. I'll uh, wait. So did you that you then went to Spain? Yeah. And so... you had one of the experiences of a lifetime. I did. So my brother has told me in the past, and my father has told me about this too, about this this fire festival in Spain, and da 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 da. And they would always tell these stories, and I sort of didn't get it. You know, I'll also criticize them and say they weren't very good storytellers. But <laughs> <laughs> essentially, there is a festival in this village in Spain. Um, very and little known. I mean, very little I haven't known. read anything about it. I can't find anything that's in English yeah. about it. Yeah, it is also, uh, and they really do not want uh, outsiders. The only way that I know that we found it is many, many years ago, my uh, father and my stepmother were just touristing around, and they accidentally ran into it. And all these people were, they were not properly dressed for this fire festival, meaning they were wearing, like, regular clothes. And these people were like, get away, get away. And then they saw... Of course, they said that in Catalan, not in English. Um, but, you know, uh, and then they saw this huge fire festival and they were like, what is this? And that's how they investigated. But I will say that while we were there, I didn't hear any English being spoken. Almost everything was Spanish and Catalan. I think it's a very localized thing. So let's talk about what am, what am I talking about? Oh, well, I'm so glad that you asked. So it's this enormous, uh, it's a city and all the buildings are stone. And it starts in this town square that's stone. And the way that the city is built is you kind of walk through uh, passages of alleyways and courtyards to navigate around it. So if you were to look, I assume, from like a helicopter or a drone or something from above, it would look very much like a maze with stone walls. Because that's the way these ancient medieval right cities were built. Um, and I use the term city extremely loosely town village uh so it's almost like being like within the castle walls so to speak so what happens is it's uh become a very artistic endeavor in fact i think the group that that runs it someone told me is like a art group and they have these different um we might call them uh puppets or something but they're like sort of larger than life enormous there's a dragon and a lady with one breast hanging out and some other things which people manipulate and operate and you know they're 10 feet tall um and so the festival kicks off with people rappelling down this building in the town square on fire. And then before you know it, there's the this people high are on pi- fire. The people are on fire. There's this high-pitched squealing noise, and there are sparks and fire everywhere. Now, we were told to wear uh, long-sleeve shirt, hats, long-sleeve, uh, long pants, closed-toed shoes, um, 
scarf you know, across and have a scarf face. across your face for the smoke and stuff. And oh man, I wish I had had some people did goggles, uh, gloves. I wish I had had a heavier shirt. I had a very thin shirt because I had been thinking about um, it being hot out, which it was. But I got burned several times because my shirt was so thin that the fire and the sparks just went right through the shirt. Um, but so in essentials, what happens is you there's a drums and music throughout this whole thing i mean it's very medieval and you are sort of pushed or rushed into the center of all this fire and then the crowd starts moving and as you can imagine when you're in a crowd like that when it moves you move and you sort of to a certain extent have no control over whether or not you're part of the festivities because once you start going through the maze of buildings you're being pushed along and in past years apparently you were able to sort of step away towards the buildings to get out of the line of fire quite literally so to speak um, but they were just having none of that and these people come along and at sort of foot and butt thigh level they're um they have these things that look like fire extinguishers, but they spray fire <laughs> and sparks. And so basically, if you try to sort of – they're to control the crowd, essentially. So if you try to move away or out of it, they herd you with them. And at one point when I was with my brother, he just, like, wasn't moving. But he couldn't move because the crowd was so dense ahead um, that he basically got his butt, like, flamed because he couldn't move forward. Wow. And they're just doing it at you. So the fire is coming at you from above. They have these lines strung, which at pre-given uh, times they set off. And then it's like basically fireworks falling on you. Reason for the hat. Um, they also have people with these whirring sticks. The noise, by the way, is unbelievable. I wish I had had earplugs. Uh, I, we were all deaf for like two days. Um, and they spray sparks at you from above and towards your face. They also have the people, obviously, with the uh, non-fire extinguisher fire things. And then also, uh, they the thing that scared me the most that ran away from that actually was very, very the most painful of all is they have these huge um, sets of firecrackers essentially but what they do is they blow up and they spray this kind of shrapnel at you um i mean it's not like metal shrapnel like in a real war but it's enough that like i have a couple bruises on my thighs from them and you know i got and you get banged up pretty good and you definitely don't want to get anything in your eye or anything like that you know so like and you could literally be on top of it and all of a sudden it goes off like under your feet and you're just getting thwacked so when you and it was and an, yeah. Sorry. And aren't you running the you whole are. time? You are. So there's a lot of time that you're running and jumping and also like you're just trying to get the sparks off you. So like you're shaking your body and like moving and the crowd around you is jumping and undulating and everybody's singing. There are a lot of like songs and chants that everybody in the crowd knew that we didn't obviously almost all in Catalan. Um, and you know, every now and then you pause for a moment and there's a kind of show, either there was a drumming show at one point with some fire eaters. Then there was another point at which the dragon did this whole dance. There was another time when the lady did this dance and then she sprayed sparks at your face. Um, and you never know how close or how far you are going to be from these events because it just depends where in the crowd you've sort of been jostled to. So it's kind of a fascinating experience. Halfway through, they take these fire hoses or not, ho just not fire hoses, just like big hoses and they just spray you with water, which is fantastic. 
because it's <laughs> boiling hot. You're wearing like long sleeve, you know, long pants. You've been running. You've also been on fire. And you now, and the other thing is, I thought this was going to be a short like festival. This was a two hour run, jump, dance, scream, whatever. There were times when in my head, I was saying to myself, keep your shit together, Julie. Don't lose it. You must <laughs> keep moving right because <laughs> so, i know i lost all the members of my group but luckily i found my brother you know a little ways through and so he and i stuck together and partially because he's my younger brother i was like do not punk out in front of your younger brother julie you will keep your <laughs> shit together and so there were times when i literally felt like i was just trying to survive and like make it to the next moment and there were other times when you were like wow this is amazing there was definitely the last like at least 45 minutes where I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. You know, <laughs> but the other thing is, because, but I can't get but out. I can't get out. And the other thing is because I didn't know when it was actually done. I think that exacerbated the sense of like, is it over now? Now is it over? Is it over now? Now? How about now? Um, that said, it was amazing. It was beautiful and terrifying. I definitely feel that anybody who had ever been to war should never go because the experience for me, and obviously I've never been to war, so I have no firsthand knowledge of this, but having watched some movies, which sounds like <laughs> the lamest sentence ever, but if the movies are even half of what the actual experience is like, that is very much what this was like. You hear these high-pitched noises. Things are, like, blowing up from under you and from behind you. There's, you know, fire and stuff coming at you. You're being pushed. You sort of don't know what's happening or which direction you're supposed to go. Um, apparently, they change the route every year so that people can't game plan, you know, exactly how it's going to go. So I thought that was interesting. But the very end of the festival is quite lovely. You lie down in the middle of the town square where it all started. Just like on the ground, on your back, in a crowd of people. Which if you try to lie down on your back in a crowd of hundreds of people, you basically are lying on strangers and they're lying on you. And you look straight up and there are fireworks directly over your head and the sparks come down and fall on you. For good or for bad. I wore sunglasses, which I had been warned about making sure that no embers fall in your eyes while you're lying there but it, it was sounds the, like something you could never do in america through you'd say why did i choose to do this i, would say, I must I would be say, out of my mind i would say a quarter of the way through i thought what is wrong with me i, I mean because the thing is i'm not athletic i am not brave i am not like you know, if you if you asked me what one of the least favorite things in the world for me to do, it would be running. Uh, and if you ask me one of the, you know, and I've never been like fascinated by fire. I just, I mean, there's none of these things that are me. And yet it was one of the most beautiful and fascinating experiences of my life. And like, you know, really, really wonderful. And even though like my arms really, I did come home with all these burns all over my arms. I have holes. I was wearing a t-shirt and then another shirt over it. And I have holes in both of those shirts. In fact, there's one place there. At one point I said to my brother, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. He was like, what is wrong? I was like, I was like, something is in fire on fire in my pants. <laughs> okay. And I'm like literally just like slapping my ass to try to put out whatever's happening. And when I went home later, I found right above 
where like the top of my jeans was, you know, where that gap is kind of in the back mm-hmm. of your jeans when you bend over. There, there was there's a huge hole in the back of both my outside shirt and my uh, inside T-shirt. And so I'm sure that some ember went straight through and down into my pants. Hot. I know. Great. Who, who can say <laughs> that that has happened to them? So the great question, of course, was, you know, besides the adventure, I mean, here's the thing that I believe, too, which is like everything that you do um, becomes a part of you in some way. And, you know, if you're and most art is an expression of who you are. So I know a lot of people when I put like I posted on my vlog some uh, images of it and um, you know, I think a lot of people said, oh, I can't wait to see how this is going to become a part of your art. And I'm not sure that it's so one-to-one, like, you know, I see fire, I draw fire kind of thing. But I am curious to see, like, how that experience translates. And for me right now, what I feel, and this is maybe two or three weeks removed from it, is I feel this overwhelming sense of, like, being proud of myself that I made it through (laughs) this what I would call like a gauntlet of fire an odyssey in fact it was long enough that I would call it an odyssey um and I I did something which is not easy for me and I persevered and pushed through and got the reward which was what you know the glow and the excitement of the and the endorphins and the whatever from having had this experience you know because the thing is like there is something about like the incredible I mean I don't jump out of planes I never plan to get a bungee cord attached to me I'm never gonna do any of those things but I think like the that rush of having been through the risk in a funny way I think some of that is true about um, art making too which is the times that I have said you know what screw it let's take that part out let's cut that part off let's you know when you take that risk when you do something that you didn't necessarily want to do I think there is a reward I think it's also applicable to some decisions you've made as far as your career goes Mm. I will leave the theater I will try doing this you know I will ask if if they have any interest in my designing stencils I will I mean it's more about taking risks and being out of your comfort zone and understanding that the worst that can happen to you is it won't work out well you know we actually go back to this conversation before which is when you ask a question the worst thing that somebody can say to you is no you know and I know we were talking about saying yes versus saying no but I I feel this way about a lot of things, which is if you never ask, you never know the answer. And at least if you hear the no, you know, you sort of know which direction to go next. What's unusual for you in this is that you were taking physical rather than psychological risk, which is really not your comfort zone. It's really not my comfort zone. I mean, literally, my entire philosophy of life is I don't have to run faster than a bear. I just have to run faster than you. So, right. So some of some of this, I will say, we actually, I talked about this with a bunch of other people in our group who went to this fire festival. As I said, this weird thing started to happen. Like at the beginning, I was sort of aware of other people and wanting to be careful. 
halfway through, I was like, you're taller than me. I'm getting lower than you. So the fire hits you and not me, you know, <laughs> or like, I need to go there. I'm shoving you out of the way. I mean, you just, Survivor. It, it, right. it just became this thing where I was like, oh my God, when the apocalypse comes, I'm going to be that person with an ax. Um, but there was an element of that for real of just like, you know, I, I got to look after me right now. I can't worry about you. This sounds actually tremendous. Now, the real question is, would you ever do it again? Or is once enough? You know, the answer to that is yes and no. Like, would Thank I, you. the answer is like, would I specifically go to Catalan for this festival? No. If I were there when it was happening and I had the proper clothing, then I think I would do it again. But I would be prepared in a different way. I would definitely have, like, very specific clothing. I mean, there's some things that would have made it more comfortable and easy. Gloves, earplugs, you know, goggles, you know, a thicker shirt. Just, like, things so you wouldn't have to think about. If you didn't have to think about your personal safety in the same way. And it actually reminds me of, like, I say this all the time. When you go to make art, if you're wearing your favorite dress and you're worried about paint getting on you the whole time, it's really hard to make art. You know, but if you're wearing like an apron and your paint clothes and you don't really care or you're working in a room where you can't get paint on the floor, like it's really constricting. And so I think the same thing is true with this, which is if I were less worried about like my personal safety and I felt more protected. I mean, if I was wearing a fireman's outfit, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. So let's talk about um, art stuff from Spain. CC. So... Um, a couple of things. One, I actually did, uh, enjoy, I, so I'm not a plant person, you know, it's not like I ever look at plants and I'm like, that is a prickly cactus. And this is a, you know, I don't even know the names of anything, but whatever it is. But I did find it interesting as I always do when you go to a foreign country to see all kinds of, um, different you know, plants and leaves and flowers and things that you are not used to seeing. So that was kind of fun. I snapped a lot of pictures. Um, I think that we didn't go to any art museums. We went into a couple galleries and saw some work. Um, but so much to me of the area that we were in was art. We went to several different medieval villages and seeing that architecture and those buildings, there was one part that I loved, which is um, there were some frescoes that were in terrible disrepair that had clearly worn away over time. But seeing them in that state, in which you never see in a museum, right? Because museum pieces are usually like perfect, you know, specimens. It was fascinating because obviously these were things that were in the weather and in the sun and in the rain and in everything else. And they just wore away over time, um, you know, and just seeing how people had mixed, you know, you see this ancient stone building in this cobblestone lane and it looks like, you know, you're expecting to see someone from Game of Thrones come charging around the corner and then you look up and there's a TV antenna. And it's sort of that, like, that interesting mix of how these people have made a modern life in an ancient world. And I liked a lot of seeing that kind of stuff, too. 
Talk about the expedition to Dolly's house. Oh, God. Okay, so we were told that seeing Dolly, Salvador Dolly's house, he has like a compound that he settled in, was worth the trip. And worth the trip means it's like an a, like a two-hour drive from where we were staying. So the last day that we were, you know, full day that we were there, we were like, okay, we're going to take the two-hour drive. So we get in the car and we go. And it is some windy roads that are scary. It is the side of a mountain and you are just, it makes Route 1 in California look like a joke, by the way, because there ain't no safety. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so you're driving down these crazy roads. It's, you know, a two-hour drive. It's a beautiful drive, but it's still a two-hour drive. Um, and so we get into town and we sort of, we don't have any, uh, Wi-Fi because we're in a foreign country. So we're just, you know, we're hoping for open Wi-Fi connection somewhere to try to figure things out. But we figured how big could this town be? And Dolly's house has to be the center of it. So we'll just park in the big parking lot, you know, where everybody's parking and figure it out. So we park and we're trying to follow signs and trying to read, you know, they, most of the signs are in Catalan, not in Spanish, but or sometimes it's a mix. So and I speak in uh, I speak un poquito uh, of Spanish, just the tiniest bit. And so I'm, you know, trying to figure it out. We cannot find Dolly's house. It is hot as balls, for lack of a better term. So we finally figure out that Dolly's house is about a mile walk. And we have a long discussion between the two of us about whether to move the car or whether to just suck it up and walk. And we're like, you know what? Ancient village. We've never seen it. Let's just do this walk. So we uh, discover, which no map tells you and no human tells you, that the mile... <laughs> I, you're laughing already, Mom. That the mile is up a mountain and down a mountain because you because Dolly's house is on the other side of this mountain so as we're hiking up it I say to Steve I'm like you know I wonder if it's up the whole way or if it's going to there's going to be some down at some point like well and he's like I don't know you know stay let's stay on the shady side of the street if we can what shady side are you talking about so we get really excited because at the very top, we see these giant silver heads, which are on top of the whole Dolly's house compound. So it's kind of an exciting moment and it's like gives us hope. So we start to go down the mountain and and the thing is just safety regulations in general are just different in other countries, right? And so, I mean... There were some, there were some nimble footwork places where you had to be goat-like to make it down the various, you know, craggy rock outcroppings, which, you know, tons of people are walking up and down, but it's, you know, you're doing it in your sandals trying to make it happen. Anyway, so uh, we made it down there and it was this beautiful little beach area and there was you know uh some fun stuff and I walk right into the ticket office and I'm waiting in the line and I walk up to the window and I say to the woman two tickets please and she says do you have a reservation and I say no and she says oh well the next opening is next week so 
Apparently, you need a reservation to go to the Dolly Museum, the Dolly House Museum, which so two different sets of people recommended we go, and nobody told us that we needed reservations. And I suppose if we had had internet, we would have been able to check. But uh, so we were like, okay, the part about this that is the saddest is not that we don't get to go. It's that we have to go back up <laughs> this fucking mountain and back down again, right? So... So we got a soda because that seemed like a good plan at that moment to like sit for a moment and have a soda and get our strength up. And then off we went up the mountain and down the mountain again. And I believe at some point we did have a discussion about whether you could find somebody who had tickets and sort of shove them off the cliff and take their tickets. But then we decided that was unethical and uncalled for. And then I believe at one point we stood at the top of the sort of mountain overlooking Dolly's complex. And you can see like the whole maze-like thing. We could see people walking around his complex and stuff. And Steve and I looked at each other and said, I bet it's not even interesting anyway. They look like they're <laughs> not having a good time and like they're very hot. Uh, and then I think the best part was we actually we stopped for a little bit in this little church which didn't look like much of anything very simple old 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 simple simple church not anything like fancy but there there's this red door that was open and it said you know uh the cemetery is open at least i thought that i was trying to read the spanish and that's what i thought it said so i said to him let's you know let's take a peek and it went into this beautiful garden and there were beautiful statues and gorgeous mausoleums and it was actually like in terms of art it was one of the bigger treats because many of the um, niches that were there had like custom painted tiles or had hand done artwork of all kinds so it was a lovely surprise and actually thank goodness we didn't go to the Dolly House Museum because we got to see the um, church graveyard instead. So that is my story of winding my way up one side and down the other <laughs> side of Dolly's Mountain. So any other art experiences or that was it? Um, I would say that was it. I mean, I did a little bit of sketchbook painting, like just hanging out by the pool and stuff like that. But for the most part, for like formal art experiences, that was kind of, that was it. Okay. It, it, you did go to a, was it a carnival or something? We did. We went to a carnival. I'm not sure that counts as an art experience. No, but I'm just saying, well, but it, it, they're different in different countries. Well, are, I think They it's... are different in different countries. And, like, I was clear on the fact that, like, there was a ton of unlicensed, like, Disney <laughs> and Simpsons and other, you know, like, rides that you were like, there's no way, you know, that any of this has been paid for. Um, but it was also interesting to see how much like American stuff there was. Also, did you know that you can get churros in like 50 flavors and like coated in chocolate and like big, huge, long ones and like, or like French fries or like, I mean, it was, it was an exciting array of churros. So it was worth it. Let me tell you. It well, was this is, it. uh, actually... I'm sure that at the time you may not have felt this way, but it actually sounds 
like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was all a lot of fun. I mean, I think we were, you know, I'm making us out to be more grumpy than we are. It, it was rather disappointing, though, to have hiked through the sun and to do all this stuff and to have driven the two hours and then to still have to drive the two hours back, you know, and to not have gotten to see it. But... Someday. Now, that means you still have the experience ahead of there you, you of go. going to Dallas House next time. See, it's all about attitude. It's all about attitude. Yes. Yeah, so someday, someday, Dolly and I will so, be together. So then you came back and you had your top secret mission. Yes, yeah, so I had my top secret crafting mission. So I went out of town again for that. The best thing that's happened to me, actually, since getting back to Europe is getting back from Europe. Yes getting back from Europe is that I deep cleaned my studio for real. Wow. Like for real, for real. Um, in fact, I think my, my friend May Flom put it the best after she saw a video of it on Instagram and she was like, wow, for a studio, that is like hospital surgery level clean. I was like, I know, right? Because it's like there are surfaces that are clear of stuff everything has been labeled there was some real deep cleaning that I needed to do which I was grumpy about but I did get done like I have been waiting and waiting and I've just had like bins and bins of hand carved stamps and I finally sat down and categorized them out and put labels and put them in containers and like they're all pretty and I can find what I need now which is amazing um and kind of stuff like that and you know how when you do a big cleaning project there's usually like this little or not so little pile of stuff that you're like oh I just can't deal with that and I'm tired of cleaning and I'll leave it to later and I didn't let myself do that on either you know of these projects so I have two studios which I'm very lucky to have I have a dry studio where I do uh quilting um scan and cut stuff anything that does not really involve paint um, and then I have a wet studio, which is a room that is equipped to handle uh, paint and wet and all that kind of stuff. And so usually one is sort of okay and the other is a total disaster. But now they are both sublime perfection. I'm sure that will end very soon. But the thing that I found is in the past few days, I've actually made more art than I have all the month of August. Partially just because I think having that space emotionally, mentally, like whatever, it just makes those spaces more pleasant to be in and it makes me want to make things. So it's a good mental note to myself to not let things get quite so out of control. Um, it's hard when I'm traveling. It's hard when things are coming in and, in and out of the studio. And I made a personal resolution for myself, which I, I haven't even told you yet, mom. Wow. Well, once I you tell me, know. you have to do it. I made a Well, that's why I didn't tell you. But I made a personal resolution for myself that instead of like endlessly packing and unpacking, packing and packing, I was going to make a dedicated bag of travel art journal supplies, even if it meant double buying things. So like, you know, I already own a, you know, whatever, this marker or this kind of whatever, but I'm just going to buy another one and put it in the stupid bag. Just like I have, uh, I finally stopped trying to uh, unpack and repack my cosmetic bag every time I travel. Now I just have travel cosmetics and home cosmetics. So I think I'm going to do that now, which is just have like my travel, you know, art journal bag and then the stuff I have at home and stop having to constantly, you know, where is that? Is it in this bag? Where did I put that? Did I put that away or is it still in my suitcase? You know what I mean? Good for you. There you go. That's my exciting resolution. That's my New Year's resolution for 2018. It's too early to call that. It's sort of like if you had a vacation house and then your permanent residence house, 
And instead of taking the blender back and forth between the two houses, you just buy two blenders. Yes, except my vacation house is a suitcase. But yes, I totally get that. <laughs> and you, have you had some art experiences in the last month? Not really. What a sad and lonely life you lead then. You're absolutely right. That's not entirely true. I mean, I think like you sent me a picture of some Mary Mecco clothes that you had bought and stuff like that. And that's a kind of art experience. I mean, fashion is an art experience and certainly Mary Mecco. And you talked about like scale of patterns and all that kind of stuff. I will tell you that uh, where art enters my life a lot is in design, mm. you know, not in like doing art but in appreciating design of things. And of course, in talking to you. Aww. Aww. Well, anything else you would like to add to our August adventures in arting? No, I think uh, we've done it. I personally plan to re-listen to your description of the fire festival <laughs> several times. <laughs> If only you could be chased by fire through uneven cobblestone streets while people push you out of the way to survive. I am smart enough to not put myself in a situation <laughs> that I know I'm not suited for. I am not smart enough for that, so... Well, no, you are just more daring. I think it's wonderful that you did it. I'm actually shocked. You know that my brother and my stepbrother both said to me in the days leading up to it, which only made me more resolved... They said, you'll hate it. You are not going to like it. This is, you are, you're not going to like this at all. And I felt. Did they say that in a warning way? They or said a it, condescending way? I, I can only tell you that they said it to me in the same way that Patrick Swayze says about Jennifer Grey in Dirty Dancing. She can't do it. She can't do it. And in that, in the movie Dirty Dancing, when he's talking about she can't dance with him, she narrows her eyes. And in that moment, you know that she's going to show him that she can do it. And that's exactly how I felt. All right. Nobody go. puts Julie in a exactly. corner. Exactly. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, it's time for us to wrap up. So, um, as always, you can find me at ballsresigns.typepad.com. And do leave us your comments or questions at ballsresigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, which we hope that you do, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast. Also, please subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.